This episode of the Weekly Standard Podcast is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips with more than 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, better living, and more. The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now, for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of up to 80% off the original price of selected courses, including Latin 101, Learning a Classic Language. For this limited time 80% offer, go to thegreatcourses.com slash WS to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash WS. Good afternoon, Mr. and Mrs. North America and all the ships at sea. This is uh, Philip Terzian, literary editor of the Weekly Standard, uh, with my <clears throat> weekly podcast on the books and arts section of the Weekly Standard. And this week I am going to embark on an unprecedented experiment. Um, it being that time of year, um, like more than a few readers, I suspect, I have been enjoying the pleasures of bronchitis and pneumonia for the last couple of weeks, and <clears throat> not only was I barely unable to sit up to uh, say anything, but even if I had spoken into this microphone, my voice was such I don't think you would have understood me. So I apologize for the, uh, for the uh, interregnum here, and I wanted to bring us up to speed on what we've had in the books and arts section during this period, and God willing, we will now be back on track and on schedule. Um, and we begin with the March 2nd issue, um, which I am very proud of because it begins with a wonderful essay by Terry Teachout, the Wall Street Journal uh, critic and biographer um, of the New Library of America, uh, two-volume work on American musicals, which take us from uh, the beginning, which they claim to be the mid-1920s, to the end, which is about 1970, of the golden age of the American musical. And Terry Teachout has a, a great <clears throat> excuse me, piece on that, which is followed by a, um, a very interesting essay by Ray Herbert, who writes about science for me, uh, of a book called Going Ape, Florida's Battles Over Evolution in the Classroom by Brandon Haught from the University of Florida Press, which is a chronicle of the the battles in the state of Florida over the last um, couple of decades, over the teaching of evolution and the uh, efforts by the creationists and others to either end such teaching or uh, put it on a par with uh, creation, Christian creation theory and so on. Uh, an interesting subject, um, and the book sounds like an interesting read, and, and Herbert's essay lays out the issue um, fairly succinctly, I think, for us. Um, we also have a piece by Marcy Shore, a young historian at Yale, on two books um, by uh, Adam Michnik, the uh, Polish poet, statesman. One is um, his dialogues over the years with Vaclav Havel, and the other is a book entitled The Trouble with History, Morality, Revolution, and Counter-Revolution, which is Michnik's reflections on <clears throat> excuse me, the, the soul against um, the Soviet uh, dominance of Eastern Europe as it was seen and understood and resisted by Eastern European intellectuals such as Michnik and 
Havel, and also what the end of the Soviet Empire has meant uh, in ways, what it has meant uh, in and of itself, and in ways that he and people like Havel had had anticipated or had not anticipated. Things have turned out roughly the way he hoped, and in other ways, things have worked out in ways he didn't anticipate. And Marcy Shore explains all this in very interesting fashion. We also have a piece by Eve Tushnet on a, a very interesting book called Labor's Love Lost, The Rise and Fall of the Working Class Family in America by Andrew Churlin from the Russell Sage Foundation, which is a, I think the, I think the subject is self-explanatory, but it's interesting that it comes to us as well on the 50th anniversary of the Moynihan Report about the problem of um, uh, single-parent families in the minority community. Um, Eve Tushnet is taking this a little step further, saying that the breakdown of marriage has had much wider social ramifications, not only for the institution, but also for um, the condition of uh, child-rearing in America. And um, a, uh, uh, a more timely subject, uh, you can't imagine. Um, John Van Hortz, um uh, looks at Fifty Shades of Grey in, in a way that only John can. But he, he as always, he, he, puts, he, he tells us not only about the, the history of the story, the, the book and the movie, um, but also what that tells us a little bit about the state of American movie making at the moment. In our, in our March 9th issue, I'm very pleased with the lead piece, which is by uh, Benjamin Belinton, an Israeli um, writer lives in Jerusalem, occasional contributor to these pages. But it's a biography of um, David Ben-Gurion, entitled Ben-Gurion, Father of Modern Israel, by Anita Shapira, who is an Israeli historian. It's from Yale Press. David Ben-Gurion, of course, was a I suppose one might say the George Washington of Israel. He, at any rate, he was one of the uh, pioneering Zionists and was the first <coughs> prime minister of uh, Israel after, uh, uh, and in many ways, the face of um, Israel for the first 15 years or so after Israel's creation in 1948. Um, I have a photograph of him here, for example, um, where he's um, in the White House talking to Harry Truman with Abba Eben, many of you will remember him, standing behind them. And um, as I say, Ben-Gurion was the not only the power but the face of Israel in, the, in its initial years. Of course, he, he left office in 1963 and died um, uh, in the early, uh, mid-70s, early 70s. So he's, he's very much from the um, we, we've moved on considerably since the Ben-Gurion era, but I think an, an understanding and appreciation of what Israel is and what it meant to the world in its formative phases um, uh, has to come with an understanding and appreciation of David Ben-Gurion, and Balint's essay is, is a wonderful one. That is followed by a review by Dominic Green of a new biography of Edgar Allan Poe, um, and uh, I guess the only comment I have to make is that Poe is one of those writers, in, in some respect, better known than read. And, of course, the point of Green's essay, and to some degree I think the mission of the book, is to describe just what an important 
figure Poe is in the history of literature, not just American literature, and that beyond the melodramatic life and the macabre details thereof, there's a great deal to learn and appreciate um, in not only reading about Poe, uh, but reading Poe. That is followed by a um, an amusing little essay by William Pritchard, another frequent contributor, a um, distinguished literary historian at Amherst College, who uh, inexplicably has a, a, a taste for soap operas, which he uh, confesses and describes and then tells some anecdotes about his relationship with one in particular, um, Search for Tomorrow. But it's a kind of interesting exploration of how how high and low culture sometimes intersect in funny ways and ways we don't expect. And um, when you have a distinguished um, professor of English at Amherst um, contemplating the appeal of Search for Tomorrow, um, it's something you really have to you really have to read. That is followed by a, a, a review by James Banner of a new book by. Um, uh, historian Richard Evans entitled Altered Past, Altered Pasts, Counterfactuals in History. Counterfactuals are um, situations where historians or whomever take um, uh, hypothetical possibilities in history. You know, what if, you know, as James Thurber famously wrote, what if Grant had been drinking at Appomattox? What if Hitler had succeeded in conquering the Soviet Union, what if, what if, and Richard Evans is very, um, uh, I think to some degree, understandably impatient with things like that, since of course history isn't, isn't what if, history is, is, is what happened and why. Um, but it's a nice essay about the extent to which we think about, the way we think about history and the way, and the counterfactual history is one way we have of understanding the past by looking at it in from different dimensions. You know, how would we have been different if we had, if the South had won the Civil War, or if the United States had never uh, declared its independence, or hadn't declared its independence from Britain until a generation or two later, or this can all go on ad infinitum. But a nice, um, a nice exploration of the subject by James Banner. And John Podhortz, he doesn't review a movie this week, but in the light in the in the light of the um, Academy Awards, he talks about um, whether Hollywood is racist, which is a question that Hollywood was asking itself this year because um, <clears throat> a, a number of the major categories really had very few or no uh, black nominees, and there were, of course, uh, in in contrast, one might say, with with the year before when Twelve Years a Slave, I think, won the Best Picture Oscar. John's Answer is 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 detailed and nuanced as always, and he also makes the point that you you could perhaps make an argument there's a kind of implicit racism in Hollywood in film, but not necessarily in television. And he explains why. Uh, it's a kind of interesting argument. The current issue, March sixteenth, I begin with a splendid essay by Ted Joya. Ted Joya is a the writer um, happens to be the brother of Dana Joya, the poet, former head of the National Endowment for the Arts. But um, Ted Joya writes about music and very much writes about jazz. And he has an essay this week 
um, on the 60th anniversary of the death of Charlie Parker. Charlie Parker was the great alto saxophonist of the 1940s and early 50s, one of the founders of bebop, one of the real revolutionaries of jazz. One can trace his influence into all manner of um, um, uh, strains and stems of modern music. Um, but um, he died rather prematurely. He was in his mid-30s, died in 1955. And his reputation now is, is really, it's a little like Poe. We, we kind of know Charlie Parker for his colorful life more than for the music he produced. And Ted Joya has a splendid essay on why Charlie Parker is important, why we need to listen to him, and why we need to take this uh, occasion to, to take a second look at, at him and his achievement. That is followed by a review by Susan Crystal on um, two books about Homer. Homer on the Gods and Human Virtue, Creating the Foundations of Classical Civilization by Peter Ahrensdorf from Cambridge University Press, and Why Homer Matters by Adam Nicholson from Henry Holt. Um, Susan Crystal, who is a classicist, um, takes two books, one of which is a sort of scholarly examination of the question of the authorship of Homer, and the other, the Nicholson book, is more um, uh, why you should read Homer, no matter who Homer, what or was, or where he was, or what he was. Um, it's it's always useful, especially for someone like me, who's embarrassingly devoid of a classical education, to be reminded of how much we owe the classical world, uh, not only for um, uh, democracy and architecture and art and so on, but but for the foundations of our civilization and and that the wonderful thing about a poet like Homer, of course, is that as as deep in the mists of history as he may be hidden, um, nevertheless, his work speaks to us with a with a genuine immediacy, which is part of the genius of the classical world. Anyway, a, a great essay by Susan Crystal of two very interesting books, and a review by Andrew Nagorski of a, a book from another book from Yale entitled Artists Under Hitler, Collaboration and Survival in Nazi Germany, the thesis of which is that we mostly think of uh, when Hitler came to power in Germany in 1933, all the novelists and painters and architects and musicians immediately fled and well many did but a lot did not and and of course a few were nazis but but it also left some people and he uses a prominent example being Paul Hindemith the the great composer someone who who struggled to figure out a way to accommodate to the regime, um, even though he knew it was a kind of betrayal of his own um, character and intellect. Um, it's, a, it's an example of the kind of challenge one faces under these circumstances, which, of course, even Hindemith in the end couldn't resist, and, and he came to the United States in 1939, although probably at the, probably the last possible moment. But his case is reproduced in many other cases. But an interesting exploration of the question of the the conscience of the artist um, in the face of of, of politics. Um, a couple of other pieces: um, an essay by Barton Swaim 
on Dennis Donahue's new book on metaphor, Dennis Donahue being the great um, philosopher of literature, and it's an exploration of of metaphor as as an idea and how it has been used in literature. And an interesting essay by Edwin Yoder on a book called The Man Who Would Not Be Washington, Robert E. Lee's Civil War and His Decision That Changed American History. Um, the author's thesis being that, that George Washington in 1776 had a choice to make about whether to remain a loyal officer of the crown, as did Robert E. Lee in 1861, whether to remain an office, officer loyal to um, uh, the Union. And um, Yoder's thesis is that Lee's uh, decision is rather more um, plausible and understandable than, than the author makes it out to be. But it's an interesting book. It's an interesting question. And it takes these two figures who were, of course, distantly um, related by marriage and not, frankly, not separated all that much by, by time, um, and how they dealt with the question of their responsibilities as um, citizens and commissioned officers in the early, in the early phases of the American Republic. In an interesting piece by, by Ed Yoder and and John. Uh, Podhoritz's um, review is of a, a movie entitled Focus, which is the, the latest Will Smith uh, vehicle, which asks the question. It's a it's a perfectly pleasant, civilized, diverting movie, but. In an age when people are um, less and less inclined to stir themselves to go to the cineplex and spend who knows what thirty, forty, fifty dollars for a couple of tickets and some popcorn and a coke, um, how much longer can nice, inoffensive, um, pleasant, diversionary movies like Focus really continue? And is this uh, perhaps a, uh, an implicit crisis for movie making? Interesting essay, as always, from John. And that uh, wraps up um, three weeks of the Weekly Standards Books and Arts section. I apologize again for my absence, but some virus out there is to blame, and I promise I will not let this happen again with luck. And with even further luck, I will be talking to you next week about our next issue. Thank you very much.